Hello and welcome to Natasha Explains It All. Today's episode is going to be part six of my How Do Criminal Courts Work series. And so far in the five episodes we've done so far, we've talked about uh, mostly the uh, process between arrest and the very beginning of the court process. So we've talked about what... um, pretrial detention looks like, the bail setting process, how uh, many people are kept incarcerated while while their cases are pending simply because they can't afford money bail. We've talked about if you are released, how it's very common for you to be put on a series of conditions that you have to pay for and that if you can't pay for those things, you're going to end up back in jail. We've also talked about the plea bargaining process and how prosecutors um, leverage uh, pretrial detention, incarceration to coerce people into taking pleas um, because people are so desperate to get out of jail. And we've also talked about some of the costs, uh, not only financial, but also um, human costs um, of being incarcerated. And the I want to add a piece of good news building off of something uh, we talked about in episode five, which was the um, how expensive it is generally when you're incarcerated to even stay in touch with your family members, even though it's not only logical, but there's also lots of data supporting the fact that when people are able to maintain consistent communication with their loved ones and their support system, it increases their likelihood of being able to reintegrate into society um, in a healthy and successful way. And, but, you know, there's, again, there's uh, uh, jail and prisons are a perfect place for um, wealth extraction because you have a captive audience that is desperate um that is deprived of human contact and proper nutrition um, and contact with the outside world. And so there's many different ways of extracting money from this captive audience, literally captive audience. And one of them is by charging exorbitant amounts of money for phone calls. Um, And um, we talked about in um, part five efforts to make uh, jail and prison calls free, and su- some successful efforts um, in certain states. And one of the org- one of many organizations that has been working on this is an organization called Worth Rises. Well, since uh, s- uh, since part five, I have some positive news to share. That there is an additional um, state that has joined the states to make. Um, Um, to make calls in prison free, and that is the state of Minnesota. This is hot off the presses of May 2023 um, that the Minnesota governor, Tim Waltz, signed a bill called SF2909, and that makes um, calls free for people incarcerated in state prisons. This is a huge win across the board. Not only does this allow incarcerated people in state prisons to be in touch with their families more, 
again, the data bears out over and over again, as well as just common sense, this helps keep the prisons themselves safer, safer. And that means keeping people who are incarcerated there as well as staff there safer because people are in better moods when they've had the chance to talk to their family members and to be in contact and to have that um, human connection. So it lowers the temperature within the prison, leading to less disputes, less fights, less conflict. And also it not only just the fact of like being able to stay in touch with your family members and your loved ones and the people that will be there to help you um, when you are released, because the vast majority of people who are incarcerated will eventually come out. Um, But it also eliminates a major source of stress and tension and shame, which is the cost. And what I mean by that is that Um, Again, in most places in the United States, jail and prison phone calls, uh, you have to pay for them. And they're very, very expensive, far more than your cell phone plan or if you have a landline like your, your, um, your landline plan. And people who are incarcerated often have zero income. If they have any income from, say, a jail or prison job, they're making literally pennies per hour. And... So that means then that the cost of the phone calls generally falls then, therefore, on the family member who is out. And for various reasons that we'll talk about in this series as well as other episodes, the vast majority of people who are incarcerated already come from low-income families. So you now have this additional financial burden on low-income families to pay exorbitant rates to, to stay in touch with their loved ones and to hear their voices and to connect. Um, And so uh, for people who are incarcerated, there can be this additional level of like shame and sense of burden that they can't, that their family members are, you know, having to pinch pinch pennies to be able to even call them. Um, It may have to do without other basic necessities in order to be able to afford those phone calls. And by making those phone calls free, you are removing that financial stress, and therefore that source of shame and tension between the family members who are on the outside, who honestly are often women, um, the mothers, girlfriends, sisters, who are the ones carrying the financial burden um, to keep in touch with those who are on the inside. So we can start this episode with some fantastic news out of the state of Minnesota that uh, prison calls in the state of Minnesota, based on the passage of this bill, will um, allow allow folks to um, to speak with their um, to speak with their family members um, uh, without cost. And so that is really, really exciting. And now Minnesota joins, let me make sure I get this right, Connecticut, California, and Colorado, the three other states who have made their um, who have made calls within their prisons, state prisons free. And that doesn't mean it's going to be perfect in terms of implementation. It's not going to be hiccups. It's not going to be a perfect system. It is definitely a step in the right direction. So that was building off of something we talked about in the last episode. So I wanted to share that really positive news update. And yay, Minnesota. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about um, is going a little bit out of order. Um, in this series so far, I've been trying to go chronologically. 
you know, to walk walk you through the criminal court system um, in a chronological fashion, so that you can walk through each step uh, and and follow as if you know what, what what would happen for someone who has who has touched the system. I want to go out of order a little bit today because we're still <laughs> in the sequence of episodes, still talking about that pre-trial phase, really early on in uh, the criminal court conveyor belt. And today I want to skip ahead, just for today, um, to talk about re-entry, to talk about what happens after you've been sentenced um, and when you're released, because um, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to give a, ever, besides this episode, going to give a TV recommendation, but here we go. Um a friend of mine uh, was telling me that this latest season of Queer Eye features um, a woman who is formerly incarcerated, um, and I watched the episode and thought it was fantastic, and I want to talk a little bit about the episode and encourage all of you to watch it as a way of uh, gaining some exposure to what the reentry process and like is like and how difficult it is. So again, Queer Eye is a television show. It's like a makeover reality television show, but unlike most reality television, it's very uplifting and has a very positive message um, and um, and deals with like real people and doesn't fabricate drama for the purpose of fabricating drama. Um, and so in this latest season, in season seven, there is a woman named Miriam Henderson Ulohu, she just goes by Mary, who um, lives in Louisiana, and she spent uh, about 12 years incarcerated and then spent about another 12 years on parole, and the uh, Queer Eye team meets her shortly after she is finally free. She's no longer incarcerated, and she's no longer on parole. She is a free woman. Uh, but is really struggling to f- actually feel free. And I think that her episode highlights some uh, some of the challenges um, of reentry and how across the board, the American system um, sets people up for failure and how life-changing it is to be able to have a um, to have a support system. So when I say reentry, I'm talking about the process of someone leaving incarceration and, um, yeah, the process of someone leaving incarceration and reintegrating into society. Um, and again, the vast majority of people who are going to be incarcerated in the United States will also be released at some point. And it's, so it's in all of our interests that, uh, people are prepared for reentry and that they're supported in the reentry process. Unfortunately, this is rarely the case. And often people who um, who have been incarcerated, when they're released, they are released with nothing. Um, and that increases the likelihood dramatically that they are going to end up homeless or they will end up back um engaging in criminal activity in order to survive. It also increases the likelihood that they're just going to die 
um, because they don't have shelter, because they don't have food, because they don't have medical care. Um, and so we are in uh, the necessity of having robust reentry programs is in everyone's interest to make sure that people who are leaving incarceration can enter stable environments. And one of the things that's really cool about this episode is that um, uh, uh, Mary, who is highlighted in season seven of um, Queer Eye, she, recognizing this own need in herself and the need and the need that so many other people have for having support in the reentry process, she started an organization called Sister Hearts that uh, the main component of it is a thrift store. And she employs people who are formerly incarcerated. And um, not only does she provide them with employment so that people can build skills and have income to be able to support themselves um, now that they're released, but she talks about this decarceration process, about shifting the mentality, shifting the mindset from being incarcerated to decarcerating, from being into being back into the normal world. And she gives some examples that I think are really powerful uh, and are really good reflection points about just how counterproductive the American structure of, of incarceration is. So she gives an example of how um, with her employees, one of the things that she allows them to do is to help, um, like decide how to arrange products on the shelves at the thrift store. You might think like, that's such a minor thing. Like, why does that matter at all? Um, being able to decide, you know, how the shoes are going to be arranged or how the jewelry's jewelry is going to be displayed. And she talks about how that, the ability to make decisions, to have any autonomy whatsoever, was something that was taken away from her while she was incarcerated. And that she was not allowed to decide where things go. She was not allowed to decide how things, uh, how things are organized. Um, and, and just um, helping, giving her employees the opportunity to make these very small decisions and having ownership over those small decisions is a way of regaining a sense of uh, control and autonomy um, over your life. And that is something that very much incarceration is designed to uh, remove from people. Your sense of autonomy, your sense of individuality, um, your sense of control over everything. Your entire environment is is controlled for you, and the rules are extremely strict. And if you and if you don't follow uh, the rules, regardless of how arbitrary they are, it can cause uh, severe problems for you, including an extension of your time in incarceration. It can re- it can re- uh, result in uh, physical punishment by guards, it can result in you being put into solitary confinement, um, or what is some places referred to as the shoe, what they call the quote special housing unit, which basically means they just put you in the hole. That's another, um, term for it. 
And what is the hole? The hole is like a an isolation chamber um, where basically there's nothing in the room except a hole in the floor, which is supposed to be your toilet. And they don't give you anything. And um, oftentimes the lights will be off or on the entire time. And um, you can be left there uh, for indefinite periods. Um, and unfortunately, jail and prison guards do this kind of uh, thing, you know, all the time. And so she just talks about how being incarcerated required her to be on her guard all the time and how um, wasn't allowed to make any decisions. And so um, allowing her employees to make these small decisions about how to display products is a way, uh, is, is a healing, um, is a healing process. Another thing, um, is about touch. And I actually get into this, into, I'll probably have to do a whole other episode about this. Um, I wrote a piece for Well and Good about how the wellness industry, uh, really needs to be talking about prison abolition because they actually have a lot uh, of overlap, even though they seem like completely disparate things. And what I talk about is how a lot of the stuff that the wellness industry promotes and profits off of um, is like recognizing the fundamental things that we all need as humans to be sane, to be healthy. And one of those things is having human touch. We need touch. And uh, I think a lot of us, because of the pandemic, experienced a level of touch deprivation that we had never before experienced and realize how detrimental this was, you know, to our well-being. And through the pandemic as well, we heard lots of horror stories, right, of people dying in hospitals and them not being able to touch their relatives, you know, their relatives not being able to hold their hands as they died. And you may have even seen these really, uh, really tough images of like, some doctors, they what they ended up doing is they took um, gloves, like medical surgical gloves, and filled them with warm water and like inflated them, and then like tied that to the patient's hand so the patient would feel like they were holding the hand of someone um, as they died. And that's like real, <laughs> real dark for a second there, but it speaks to the pandemic was like this experience experience for a lot of people to understand the importance of human touch. Even if you're not necessarily a touchy-feely person, we need human contact. Uh, we need it to survive. And going back to Queer Eye and Mary's experience, she talks about how she was deprived of touch while she was incarcerated, that she was not allowed to touch other people for 12 years. And she talks about how, you know, in this one week of this craziness with the Queer Eye Fab Five team, she has hugged more than she has hugged in, you know, in many, many years. And that really um, stood out to me because what she, and she talks about how she's not allowed, you know, touch uh, is taken away from you and, and while you're in an incarceral setting. And... Um, 
she doesn't get into this, but in a lot of places, in a lot of jails and prisons, they've even done uh, done away with, even outside of the context of the pandemic, got uh, done away with um, touch even in, in visits, in visitation, you know, with family members and loved ones. And because the prisons, uh, you know, can make more money by having people do virtual visits rather than allowing people to do in-person visits. Or if they do in-person visits, um, you know, it's through glass um, and you're like each holding a phone um, or, you you know, um, that I would say is something that some television shows do depict accurately. That that is still a practice that's very commonly used, like the the glass divider, and then like picking up the phone. Um, that's something that I don't actually know if it's still used today at the D.C. jail in Washington D.C. because they also are relying very heavily, unfortunately, on these like video visits, which again, oftentimes you have to pay for, and the technology is glitchy, and you're not in person. You don't actually get to see the person and have that three D experience. Anyway, so the deprivation of touch um, is very psychologically damaging, and but is a very common feature of control um, and dehumanization that happens in incarceration. Now, someone might respond to that and say, um, well, you know, obviously there has to be some limitations on that because we want to keep everyone safe. And, you know, we don't want to, you know, create an environment for um, inappropriate contact, right? Uh, but just, I mean, <laughs> yes, and all of that contact <laughs> still happens. Like the amount of rape and sexual assault that happens in the carceral setting is insane. There's even literally a federal law about that because it's so prevalent. It's called PREA. It's called the Prison Rape Elimination Act. <laughs> that is not very effective, um, let's be honest, but it's in response to the fact that that type of inappropriate violating touch is so common in carceral settings. They're like a perfect breeding ground um, because you have this incredible Im uh, imbalance of power between guards and inmates um, and this, this literally captive population that is at the mercy of those who are in charge and, um, and various other components that, that exacerbate this. And all of that abuse is not a reason to deny normal human physical contact handshakes, hugs, you know, a pat on the back, um, uh, fist bumps, <laughs> you know, like high-fiving. Um, we need that. Um, even for the most introverted among us, we need human touch. Um, it is necessary for our survival. And which reminds me, it's a little bit of a tangent, but just stick with me for a second. There were a lot of studies I think these studies were conducted in mostly the like 90s um, in countries like Romania that, without getting into it too much, 
Romania went through this period where they like banned birth control in addition to abortion, and they had this massive explosion in the population because there was no contraception available. But of course, a lot of these pregnancies were unwanted, and so there was like this explosion in the orphan population. Orphanages popped up everywhere. And there were experiments that were done, I mean, setting aside the ethical implications of this, just, just go with me here. I'm talking about the importance of human touch, okay? The, um, there were studies comparing the children in orphanages who not only were their basic needs taken care of, you know, they were changed, they were fed, um, you know, they were given time to rest and, and whatever, but were also given like human contact, like they were cuddled and held versus other children who were, all of their basic needs were met. You know, like if their diaper was dirty, their diaper was changed. If they were hungry, they were given a bottle. Like, you know, they were given clothing, they were given, you know, a bed to sleep in, but they were not, uh, they were not given, uh, they were not touched. They were not cuddled. They were not held. They were not rocked right? There was no affection between any of the caregivers and these babies. And the babies that didn't have that touch uh, were far more likely to die, were far more likely to be sick, um, were far more likely to just have far um, a far lower quality of life. Um, and they've even done studies with, there's like a famous study with, um, I don't know if it was a monkey or chimpanzee, my apologies, I don't know the, like, the exact species. I'm going to say monkey for, for lack of my, my, uh, familiarity with, like, the proper animal terminology. There's also a famous study using a monkey, and the monkey was given, like, two fake mothers, and one mother, they're, like, metal, they're not actual, they were not actual other monkeys, but one was like this metal monkey that provided milk. So if the if the monkey went to this this fake mother, it could get milk and can, it could get nourished. And then there was another, but it was metal, you know. So it wasn't like cuddly metal, but 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 the nourishment is there. You can get food. And then there was another there was another um, monkey mother that was very plush, like it was very soft. You know, you could like cozy up to it, but it didn't have any milk. So it wouldn't have addressed that other basic need for like food. And that study showed that the monkey consistently chose the like cozy uh, monkey mom rather than the monkey mom that uh, even though that monkey mom had the milk, which the monkey needed to survive, could not be cuddled with, you know, it was very, it was like metal and wasn't, it wasn't cozy. So the monkey always preferred the, the, the soft, um, monkey mom. Anyway, so again, like the Romanian baby study, this like monkey study reminds me of Mary's comment in season seven of Queer Eye about how the deprivation of human contact during her many years of incarceration made it difficult for her in the reentry process to also reconnect with her children because she is a mother as well. She has seven children and she has really struggled 
to reconnect with them upon her release. And part of contributing to that is how physically disconnected she has been from them and from anyone else. And so getting to the stage where, you know, like she described how like when she got out, you know, one of her sons, you know, was was hugging her super tight and was so glad to see her. And she was struggling to reciprocate that affection because she had been deprived for so long of that. And so um, I'm going to wrap it up soon because I, you know, I want to keep my episodes to uh, a tolerable length. Um, but I just want to, yeah, just kind of leave on that note about how this episode, and I've just scratched the surface of some of the things that this episode highlighted in terms of the really counterproductive aspects of incarceration that dehumanize and desensitize people while they're incarcerated, incarcerated, which sets them therefore up for failure when they're in, when they are released, because they're not in a uh, a mental and psychic state to be able to reintegrate successfully. And we need more programs like Sister Hearts that Mary started to be able to support people through the reentry process. But we also need more humane practices in incarceration so that people don't leave incarceration broken, but instead are actually rehabilitated to the extent that they need rehabilitation. So at the very least, that they're not left off worse than when they came in. It's to everyone's benefit that we produce, uh, that we release people who are, um, who are better mentally, physically, um, so that they can thrive rather than, um, rather than not. So anyway, on that note, we're going to close out for today and I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.